from Romans chapter 1, and we are in Romans 1, 18 through 25, and last week, and you can go online, you can download this sermon, we talked about the importance of the gospel for how we come into the Christian life, but the gospel, everything that is true about the gospel, how loved we are, how Jesus saves sinners, all of that propels us forward in the Christian life. So the gospel is how you come into the Christian life, and it's how you stay in the Christian life, and the gospel moving further up and further into those truths are what will take us all the way home. Now we turn to a passage beginning, it begins in chapter 1, verse 18, and I'll read through Uh, verse 25, but it is a section of Romans that really delves into the deceitfulness and the wickedness of the human heart. It is a biblical anthropology that we're presented here, and I I want you to make me a deal. Will you make me a deal that you will stick around until we get to chapter 3, verse 21, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested. And the reason why I'm telling you to stick around is because it's going to get bad. We are going down. This is the valley. You do not come up on the other side of that valley until chapter 3, verse 21. So we need to hang in there to see the good side of things. And what you're going to see in this passage is that if we really delve into and embrace how bad God's wrath is, we will all the more see the goodness of the gospel and the wonder of his grace. So Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, we ask that your spirit would guide and lead us into understanding something of a true biblical theology, a true biblical view of who you are and who we are. Show us the truth by your spirit's power that we together might walk in that truth. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. When was the last time you bought something on eBay? Do you remember eBay? It's still around, by the way. 
And eBay, I always got a kick out of eBay because they had this statement in their values and their mission and the statement that I'm talking about. It said, quote, people are basically good. People are basically good. Did you know this? That's eBay's, one of their founding sort of principles is that people are basically good. That is not true. <laughs> you may know that experientially. You may have had something very hurtful, harmful happen to you at the hands of another person that when I say, or your heart might just have been broken by someone else, so when I say people are basically good, you may say, uh-uh, that's not true. Now, what I'm not saying is that people are as bad as they could get. We're thankful for God's grace, His general grace that prevents people and restrains them from being as bad as they could be. When we say people are not good, what we mean is that everyone is a sinner, and what we mean is that people cannot do any saving good. They cannot save themselves. Yes, if you are a non-Christian or you have a non-Christian friend, they can do something. They can do a good deed, but they cannot do enough good to ever satisfy a perfect God. People are basically good, says eBay. The Bible does not say that. And you know, if we embrace this idea that people are basically good, it really leads us to a place where we diminish our sin problem, we diminish the holiness of God, and we also diminish our need of a Savior. Because if people are basically good, well, you just basically don't need Jesus then. And we know intuitively that there is something much more significant and tragic going on in the world right now that shows us that people are not basically good. Carl Truman, in an article, in a journal article in First Things in February, he wrote this, quote, we harbor a belief that with enough goodwill, intelligence, and resources, our social problems can be solved and evils eradicated, end quote. Did you catch that? What he believes is that people have been duped. People have been deceived. And what do they think? They think that with enough goodwill, intelligence, and resources, we're going to fix what's broken in this world. The Bible begs to differ. But let me tell you, many Christians believe a form of this. They think if we just get the right people in office, if we just print enough money, I mean, if we just budget correctly, everything wrong in this country is going to be fixed. But I've got news for you, and this is what the Bible tells us. We are not going back to Eden, that Jesus has to return first, and that even if we had things perfect, just like Adam and Eve did, we would find a way to mess it up. So even if we had the right people in office and the money going to the right places, we would still find a way to mess it up. If we believe for a moment that with enough goodwill, enough innovation, enough uh, intelligence and resources, our societal problems would go away. If we believe that, it makes too little of our sin problem. It makes too little of grace. 
and it makes too little of our need for a Savior. There is something more significant wrong, significantly wrong with the human heart that we're talking about. And we're just going to begin to descend into that to understand that if we can fix what's wrong with the world, maybe nothing's really wrong. That if it's within our power to correct the world, we don't really need a God. And our world tells us these lies. And what we're going to look at is we're going to take a look at the wrath of God this morning and understand that the wrath of God is completely justified towards those who are not saved in Christ. So we'll look at the wrath of God beginning here in verse 18. And that might strike you as strange. You know, you don't get a lot of wrath of God in churches today. But the wrath of God is this indignation that God has for everything that does not stack up to his character or is equal to his character. And we read in verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. God is an equal opportunity condemner. It's all ungodliness, all unrighteousness of men. Now, we might say, well, why is this happening? Is this fair? Is it justified that God is delving out his wrath, his indignation and judgment and anger towards those things which do not and are not consistent with his law? And we read at the end of verse 18 that this is happening. Why? By their unrighteousness, what do they do? Suppress the truth. In other words, one of the manifestations of sin that God's wrath comes against, and you can think about sin as any, we would define it as any want of conformity or transgression of the law of God. That's the shorter catechism. Uh, answer to what is sin. Sin is anything which goes against God's law. Now, God's law, biblically understood, it's not just the do's and the don'ts. It is a pathway for human flourishing. If you want to live something uh, in a way that is better than the American dream, better than the hill country dream, you live according to God's way. God's law, God's way is a way of flourishing and finding life and following and living in accordance with how he has called us to live and designed us to live. So if you go against that, you sin. Now there's two kinds of sin, omission and commission. The sins of omission mean we sin by not doing the maximum good. There are good things that we did not do already today here at 11.03 in the morning. If you, unless you did the maximum good, that's sin. Those are sins of omission. There's also sins of commission. These are the things we do that are intentionally wrong. Sin extends not just to the things that we do, but it's the attitude of our heart. It's the hidden thought life that we have. If that thought life isn't perfect, that's sin. So what we see is a biblical definition of sin is any lack of conformity to God's uh, perfect law. And so this wrath comes against the transgression of God's law, and in particular because people 
at the end of verse 18 here, suppress the truth about who God is. Now, we're going to look now in verses 19 and 20, unpack that a little bit. What is this suppression of the truth? Look at verse 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. In other words, if you are breathing, God has shown you something of his greatness, something of who he is. Now, we may say, where, where do we find that? Where do we see that? That's in verse 20. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived, in other words, clearly seen, ever since the creation of the world. Where have we seen these things? In the things that have been made, in the created order. So when you look out the window, when you look out this window and you see the sky and the beauty and the magnificence, when you uh, go out tonight and you look up at the sky and you see the stars, these are part of the manifestation of God's glory and His greatness. It's a communication to you. I mean, imagine for a moment, have you been to the uh, Grand Canyon? Who's been? Raise your hand. All right, lots of people have been to the Grand Canyon. When you go to the Grand Canyon and you stand on the edge of the Grand Canyon, not too close. Somebody does that every year. You're at the Grand Canyon and you look out on that expanse in the beauty and the magnitude of the Grand Canyon. If you do not in that moment recognize the majesty of he who created it, that's condemnable. Because he is that great. He is that awesome. That if we are not going to see something as grand as the Grand Canyon and worship he whom is the grandest of all, that is condemnable. In other words, the creation shouts and whispers his name. That's Psalm 19, what we used as a call to worship. The heavens declare the glory of God. And listen, you don't have to go to the Grand Canyon. Check out this hand. Watch what I'm about to do. Are you ready? Brace yourself. Right here. Opposable thumb. Human beings, the only ones who have the opposable thumb, created by God. You carry around with you part of the majesty and the awesome nature of creation which whispers sometimes and shouts, I was created. God is awesome. He is the one to be glorified. Even that little gelatinous uh, blob up here in your cranium stuck there allowing you. I mean, how do all these rods and cones make sense of any kinds of images or the fact that I'm doing this this morning? How do you sense that and perceive that? I mean, that is a reason to give glory to God. The general revelation is what theologians call when we look out in the created order and we see, ah, oh, there must be a creator. Uh, when we uh, uh, endeavor to embrace the awesome design of the created order and we give glory to the designer, that is general revelation. And general revelation is enough to condemn us 
It's enough to condemn. In other words, if you stand on the edge of the Grand Canyon, not too close, and you do not worship God, that's condemnable because He is that great. He is worthy to be worshipped. And as awesome, He has stamped His awesome nature in this created order. But you need special revelation to save you. So general revelation will condemn you. But special revelation, which comes to us in God's Word through the power of the Holy Spirit, is the good news we need to save us. And so the creation whispers and sometimes shouts the existence of God, how great He is, and a failure to acknowledge that greatness is condemnable. And where does that leave us? Uh, Look at the end of verse 20. So they were, are without excuse. No one has an excuse to resist God or to not worship Him as great if you have eyeballs that are perceiving, seeing the greatness of the created order and you are not calling out to God and giving Him praise. They are without excuse because they've refused. They've refused to acknowledge verse 21 what they know. There's a type of knowledge that comes to us from the created order. Verse 21, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. And this begins a spiral. Look in verse 21, they become futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened. They become fools, verse 22, and they become idolaters, verse 23. You see, everybody Even the most hardened atheist still worships someone or something. All human beings were made in God's image, and part of being made in His image means we are worshiping beings. And everyone worships someone or something. And what is being said here in Romans 1 is all of that glory should go to God. When we read verse 23, they exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. We think for a second, oh, I'm off the hook. I'm not worshiping creeping things. That's kind of creepy. But we're not. Anytime worship or obedience goes to someone or something else besides God, that is idolatry. And so we tend to make an idol out of things, and we can make an idol out of the American dream, we can be materialistic, we can make an idol out of money, out of comfort, out of our health, out of our appearance, out of our family. We can take good things, and when we make those things ultimate, and they take away worship and obedience from God, it's then that they become idols. And this is where it ends up. Everyone worships someone or something, and if you're not going to worship God, this is how it ends up for you. And so what is being advocated here in the uh, verses 18 through 23 is that all the worship, all the glory should go to God, that we together should have the highest view of God possible and that we should worship Him 
and give him glory. Can you imagine for a moment? You got to use your imagination on this one. This is pretty far-fetched, but I think it's kind of comic to think about. Can you imagine for a moment if Queen Elizabeth came to visit Trinity? Can you imagine that for a moment? So, so there she is, walking in those double doors. She's come to visit. She would be welcome here. We'd love to have her uh, visit. And what if you overheard me talking to her and I said, sup, Queenie? <laughs> or I said, how you doing, Elizabeth? What's up? Glad to have you here. I mean, can you imagine talking to a queen in that disrespectful way? Now, I know it kind of breaks down because we've been disrespecting British royalty since 1776. <laughs> I get that. But what is happening in these verses is the honor of God. He is so great when he is not recognized or honored for his greatness and this is in no way some, some sort of idea that God is self-centered. He's actually that great that every single molecule in this universe should give him glory and call out to him. Uh, can you think about it for a moment if some of you, if, if the uh, Queen Elizabeth thing didn't work for you? You know, some of you have worn a uniform for a living. You've been part of the armed forces can you imagine for a moment if you just woke up and said, yeah, I'm not going to salute my senior officer? How would that go? If you did not render the respect to a commanding officer and give a salute, you wouldn't last long, would you? Because by virtue of the rank, there is a demand for honor. You know, the armed forces, they don't ask you, hey, if you, uh, you salute the commanding officer if you agree with them and you think they're a good person. No, you see the rank and boom, salute. And that's a similar dynamic here. In the presence of the greatness of God, we salute with our lives, with our obedience, with our worship. And you cannot deny the greatness of God that we see all over in the created order. So we render to God the worship and obedience that is due his name. And I want you to think great thoughts about God. Too often in Christianity, we try to pull God down to our level and we sort of bolster ourselves up, hoping somehow we'll meet in the middle. That ain't going to happen. God is that great. And his name uh, is called out throughout this created order that we together would give him the reverence and the honor that is due his name. And for those who don't render that to the one who deserves it, to those who will not salute, to those who will not show that respect, there is only the wrath of God revealed against them. You know, our capital campaign for the Life Center, we called it All for Jesus. Why is that? Because in, in the Christian life, it's an all for Jesus proposition. Our time, our talent, and our treasure comes from God, and it belongs to Him. And we bring that time and that talent and that treasure to Him as an offering for His glory 
God is that great. You know, in the great white throne judgment in Revelation 20, no, no one who is condemned argues with God. That God's judgment is so righteous and just. And in that moment in Revelation 20, there is no account of anyone saying, God, that's not fair. He has transcribed his name on the created order and not to respond is condemnable. And this also makes the case that we ought to take care of creation, that we ought to take care of what God has given to us, that we shouldn't see the value of creation only in what we can extract from it, but we have to understand that the created order speaks his name and speaks to his greatness. And so that when we think about, do we deserve God's wrath? Absolutely. And it's in part because mankind, humankind, has not acknowledged the wonder of his greatness and shown him due reverence and respect in worship and obedience. So what happens next? If someone is going to be stubborn and hard-hearted, what happens next? Verse 24, therefore, God gave them up. Those are scary words. I think some of the most terrifying in all of Scripture. There is a threefold giving up that happens. Uh, the first one is in verse 24, and then verse 26 and 28 also have this dynamic of God giving up. And what it is, you can think of it this way. Uh, have you ever played tug of war with your dog? And every now and then, what do you do? Just to keep your dog kind of kind of in the fight. You let the dog win. You let go. Or have you ever played gently, of course, tug of war with children and you let go of the rope? That's what God is doing here. He's saying, if you're so hard-hearted, if you refuse to acknowledge my greatness, which I have written and transcribed all over this created order, if you continue to insist on suppressing the truth of who I am, I will let go of the rope that you are holding on to. And we read in verse 24, we move to a description really, of the time that we're living in. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. The thing, the evil, wicked things that their hearts want, he gave them up to those things. And the fact that they would not honor him as God, he dishonors them in their bodies among themselves. Now, why would God do this? That's unfair, we cry out. Verse 25 reminds us, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. They have exchanged, exchanged the truth, suppressed the truth back in verse 18 of who God is. Anytime we do not recognize God for his greatness. Anytime we worship the gifts rather than the gift giver, anytime we worship creation rather than the creator, we are subject to 
what this verse is talking about. And we, everything must be oriented to God, and we cannot confuse the gifts with the gift giver or creation with he who created in his greatness. And here's the thing. If you're listening to me, if you're streaming with us, if you're listening online to this, you are not beyond God's reach. He has not let go of that rope. Instead, there is still time for you to turn and to repent. What is repentance? Repentance is an admission of guilt, an admission of wrong, a turning from our sins to God. There is still time, if you're hearing this, to turn it around and to give all the worship and obedience that maybe is going to someone or something else and to render that to God. You are not beyond his reach. You are not beyond his reach if you are hearing this. He has not let go of you yet. Now, I don't know if you saw a couple weeks ago that Indonesian submarine. We were hoping for a happy ending for that. Uh, there was an Indonesian submarine operating off the coast of Bali, and they lost uh, contact with it. I don't know if you saw that. 53 souls on board this submarine. And it came out later, came out later that, I mean, this thing was a bucket of bolts. You know, it had no business. Uh, no one had any business being in this thing. It was a 40-year-old submarine, which is ancient. And even though it had been worked on in 2012, I mean, it was still really not seaworthy. And there they are. They're off the coast of Bali. Now, this submarine, the kind of submarine they were in, it would totally implode the crush pressure that would destroy it was 750 feet. They were in 2,800 feet of water. They had no business being in water that deep, maneuvering, doing things. And you know what's worse? The, the hatch on the sub, you know how you get in the sub, did not have the, the rescue collar on it that they could send another submarine to attach to it and get everybody off of it. So this thing was a death trap. And there they are, operating in these deep waters. They lose contact with the sub. They find it some days later in three pieces in almost 3,000 feet of water at the bottom of the ocean. There was no chance. Even if they could reach them, they didn't have the rescue, the proper rescue hatch. And I think I just described to you really the condition of the human heart. However, that's a big however, God can still reach down to 3,000 feet and rescue you and rescue me. Let it not be lost on us who's writing the letter to the Romans, that God didn't let go for the Apostle Paul, that he redeemed the very one who was killing Christians and persecuting the church. He was not beyond the reach of the power of the gospel. And neither are you and neither am I. That God, if you're hearing this, he has not let go of you. And that he can still redeem you if you would but turn to him, place your faith in Christ. You have not been given over yet. But God has every right to give over the stubborn and the hard-hearted, those who refuse to recognize 
His greatness. And it's because of that, not only do we need to know that there's an opportunity to change and repent, we also need to have compassion on people as Christians. You know, Christians can be some of the most judgmental, unloving people around. And when we look at our culture, and when we see others who have been, even those who have been given over to the lusts of their heart, we still, as Christians, should have compassion and love for those who are misguided, those who are trapped in their sin. Why? Because we were too one day. We were too. Such were some of us. Such was the Apostle Paul. And so we need to understand something of what we deserve and be able to have compassion, not just judgment, compassion on a world that is misguided and off the rails. We as Christians should be known not for our judgment, but really for our love and our ability to get into and to talk to people about how great God is. So I want you to have compassion on people not just judgment, understanding what we deserve and something of what we've escaped by the grace of God. So as we think about the wrath of God and why it's revealed to us, you can know first and foremost, that's what we deserve. That God has every right, He is that great, that He has every right to judge and to condemn those who will not acknowledge His greatness. And you know, knowing that fact, what we deserve, what we have escaped in Christ, knowing that fact makes the gospel, makes God's grace that much more amazing, doesn't it? To know something of what we've escaped, that we who were on the bottom of the ocean floor were not beyond the reach of the wonder of God's grace and salvation found in Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Lord, we ask that you would make us into a more compassionate people. That as we think about the wrath that you have for all who are unrighteous, all who are ungodly, that we together would have a love and compassion for them and display and show your love in this misguided world. And we pray as well that in knowing something of how we've escaped the wrath of God, that you would help us to cherish the truth of the gospel even more. And we pray that by so doing, you would be given the glory. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.